The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Our scripture lesson is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 11, beginning at verse 10, and reading through the brief chapter verse tw- of chapter 12 as well. I want to consider the gospel to the nations on this evening that we have seen such a visible demonstration of God bringing the world to our doorstep and the fact that the church is composed of people of every uh, nation and tribe and tongue. What a blessing that is for us. And so, here with me as I read from the the book of Isaiah, one of the foremost Old Testament books that looks ahead to the coming of Christ and looks ahead as well to the gospel going in a worldwide way to the nations. Beginning at verse 10, in that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire. And his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart, and those who who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim, but they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west, and together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites shall obey them, and the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt." And will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath and strike it into seven channels. And he will lead people across in sandals. And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song and has become my salvation. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitants of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. May God bless the reading and the hearing of his holy, inerrant word. 
This prophetic text from Isaiah tells and foretells the glorious age of the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. We're about to celebrate Christmas time, and we believe in God incarnate in Jesus Christ, come in the flesh, the God-man, fulfilling all the Old Testament prophecies and ushering in now this worldwide scope of the spread of the gospel to all nations of the world. The Old Testament looked ahead to this and prophesied it, and the New Testament fulfilled it, and it began to be unveiled as the church spread around the known world of that time. And then the grand climax of the ages is seen in this as well as the return of Jesus Christ in glory to receive his people, his bride to himself, and to glorify all of those finally and fully, body and spirit, who belong to him through faith in him. You and I live in a time where we continue to see the gospel go forth around the world. And the number of languages in the world where there is not at least a part of the Bible written and translated continues to decrease. And I want us all to be challenged and encouraged by this passage, challenged to continue to pray and work for the gospel, to give and to possibly to go, some of us, to serve where God has put us and to tell the good news and whatever opportunity God would give us, that Jesus Christ might be praised and that the nations and peoples of the world might worship the God of Scripture. This is our goal, and this is what Isaiah is prophesying about. We know that God, through Jesus, came in the flesh. It's been called God in the straw sometimes. But the prophecies of His coming the first time also tell as well about his second coming as well. Many of them do. And our text reminds me of that climactic concluding stanza of joy to the world when we sing, he rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. Looks ahead and looks to the nations coming more and more to Jesus Christ. It's similar to the words of Isaac Watts, where he did his great paraphrase based on Psalm 72, speaking about the ultimate universal reign of Jesus Christ. We know that phrase, Jesus shall reign where'er the sun does his successive journeys run. His kingdom stretch from shore to shore till moon shall wax and wane no more. We want to see from our text, number one, that Jesus Christ, that through Jesus Christ, God is gathering His people from all the nations of the world. In verses 10 and 11, we really see this being prophesied and foretold. We're told that in that day, and in Scripture there are many special days of the Lord. There were Old Testament days of the Lord in judgment and salvation when God came in a special way. And certainly Jesus Christ entered in the, ushered in that great day of the Lord at His first coming. We know that the, the greatest culmination will be when Jesus Christ returns. Throughout this gospel age, we believe that that's part of Jesus Christ standing here, we're told, as a signal, as a sign for the peoples of the world. 
Of him, it says, shall the nations inquire. This idea of the nations needing to understand the gospel. And it says, his resting place shall be glorious. And in verse 11, it says that it uses this analogy of the remnant, the return of the remnant. It says, in that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time. We know that the first time that Israel was saved was through the Exodus. That was the mighty act of redemption that the Israelites looked back to. But now in Isaiah's time, when uh, the northern nation of Israel is being threatened by exile into the nation of Assyria, and not long after that, a hundred years or so, the southern nation of Judah would go into exile into Babylon. He's talking about the return of the remnant, and that yet a second time God will recover them. And that remnant, the return of the remnant, foreshadows something even greater during the gospel age, that the nations will be gathered in even a greater, more glorious way through Jesus Christ and the preaching of the gospel. And there's a list in verse 11 of people from various nations around that the Jews will be called from, this remnant from Assyria and Egypt, and then there are other names as well, essentially from different parts of the known world at that time with the limited geographical knowledge of ancient Israel. And then the final phrase is the coastlands or the islands of the sea. Probably the places listed here were uh, what would be modern-day Italy and Spain and North Africa and beyond. But it's representative of the whole world, spoken of from the perspective of ancient Palestine. And the ultimate meaning is that the final generation of the elect, when Jesus returns, he will gather his own from all the, the nations of the world, the people of God from every nation when he comes, will be gathered with those who have already died and gone to glory, who belong to Christ. So it foreshadows that great ingathering of the people of God. In this section, we see that as the New Testament unfolds, the writers of the New Testament describe for us at various places how these Old Testament prophecies are being fulfilled with the worldwide scope of the gospel. One clear passage that way is the book of Acts chapter 15, when there's this great council that is held about the Gentiles. And there's a big debate going on about whether the Gentiles need to be circumcised. In other words, do Gentiles need to become Jews to become Christians? And finally, the debate is really finished when there's this quote from the book of Amos. You wouldn't think that Amos would be the decisive quote, but uh, we find there that the quote is that after this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. And then we see that James says, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. And then he just gives some things that they should try to do not to offend and to be a stumbling block to the Jews, to their brothers, sisters who are Jews. So here we see that 
this reference to the, the tent of David being restored is a reference to the nations of the world being gathered into the church through Jesus Christ. It's foreshadowed then and prophesied in Isaiah that the elect of every place and age will be saved through Jesus Christ. And as we meditate on the truth of the gospel and the Great Commission goal of preaching the gospel and making disciples of all nations, we need to ask ourselves, are we being intentional and prayerful in the part that God calls us to play, both individually and corporately? I can't help but be reminded by the refugees that have come this evening and who come to worship in our church week in and week out, and some of them struggling to know English well, certainly a very difficult thing. I know that, you know, I've never experienced what it's like to be a refugee, but talking to people who've been through it, they talk about what, how difficult the adjustment is and how hard it is with the language adjustment and, and the work to make ends meet and things like that. And throughout history, we just think about people groups whom the Lord is sending the gospel to. And here we have the world brought to our doorstep. I'm of mostly Germanic ethnicity. There's a little bit of Irish in there, so I like that, you know, that like one 30-second Irish. So I think about the time in history when the Germanic tribes were heathen, and they were beginning to be exposed to Christianity and to the gospel through the Roman Empire of the time. Some of them coming into the Roman Empire, and the border was very uh, porous in northern Europe. And eventually, the Germanic tribes were evangelized, sometimes by force. Sometimes it was only outward conversion to Christianity, and it took generations for the gospel really to be preached and taught. That's true for England as well. And we think of Ireland, and you think of the Vikings and Scandinavia, and you just think of the various people groups that probably represent a lot of us, the people in this church. And we think, look at that. We were once ethnically far from God, our origins. It's interesting historically to see the tendency to complacency among God's people in terms of reaching the lost. One of the great concerns of the leaders of the Great Awakening and even the smaller awakenings that preceded the Great Awakening in Massachusetts and Connecticut and other parts of New England was the needed outreach to the Indians, the Native Americans, that were living with them on the frontiers or near them. And the sinful complacency among both the English and the Dutch in colonial America about the need for the gospel to go forth one of the tracts written by Solomon Stoddard, who was the grandfather of Jonathan Edwards, put the question in this way in the title of a tract that he wrote about this. Question, whether God is not angry with the country for doing so little towards the conversion of the Indians. Their titles were always long. And this tract, this publication, was a call to awaken the church to the need to do missionary work with the Indians. Stoddard would go on to write that however far from God the Indians might be in terms of their lifestyle and things like that, he would say they are of mankind and so objects of compassion. And then he says this, I think, in, in, in case anyone felt proud or self-righteous, he reminded the whites, our forefathers were given up 
unto as brutish, we might say as depraved, a service of the devil as any nation under the sun until missionaries had, quote, pitied them and brought the gospel among them. Here Solomon Stoddard preaching through this tract, and there was agreement among the leaders of what was then essentially Calvinistic evangelicalism in America, that there was this calling to do work. In fact, one of the bright and shining lights of the, of the awakening period was the young man David Brainerd. Many of you know that name and have read about him, who was a missionary to the Indians in various parts of colonial America, especially in New Jersey and Pennsylvania. It's interesting to read about his outreach along the Susquehanna, up around Shemokin and north of Harrisburg to the tribes that were there, but in New Jersey too and to other parts. But um, this was in the 1740s on the fringes of colonial America. And he describes the Native Americans living in these areas, and he says that they'd been decimated by epidemics of smallpox, as well as by the easy availability of alcohol, and they eked out their livelihoods, he says, quote, from the fields and woods by making baskets, brooms, and wooden utensils to sell to their white neighbors. So here they were living as kind of on the outskirts of society, and Brainerd began to regularly gather these Indians to hear the word of God. And in New Jersey especially, he lived among them for months at a time with very few periods of rest. And he loved them, and he preached to them, and he taught them, and he poured out his life for them, all the time living with the tuberculosis that would eventually take his life at age 29 and the suffering that went along with that. And the Lord amazingly used his preaching and humble outreach to bring many of them to saving faith in Christ. It's a glorious story when many were complacent and many of the whites at that time saw the Indians as a profit margin, more or less, but to whom they could sell alcohol especially and earn money from. And so we see here in Isaiah a prophecy of the universal reign of Jesus Christ through the preaching of the gospel to the nations. And that continues in this age and will continue until Jesus Christ returns and gathers his elect of every tribe and language and people and nation. And the other main point we see here is the second coming of Jesus Christ involves the subjugation of all the enemies of God's people. And we see that through Jesus Christ, God is defeating his enemies. There are two ways to defeat enemies in a biblical way. One is defeat them in terms of judgment, and we know that ultimately that will come on anyone who is apart from Christ. Ultimately, they will be judged by God through Christ. But there is also this glorious defeat of enemies by making them your friends through the gospel. That is what we're told God does. And in verses 12 through 16, there's this description of a remnant of the 12 tribes returning to the land. We see that it's very interesting in verse 12. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel. And it talks about the dispersed of Judah and Israel. Ephraim, and it's this interesting description that the jealousy of Ephraim shall depart, and those who are harassed, Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah, and Judah shall not be jealous 
or not shall, shall not harass Ephraim. And there's this description of them being victorious in verses 14 and 15 over their enemies, the Philistines, Edom, Moab, Ammonites. What is being described here? Well, when the return from exile took place, and we know that there were remnants of all 12 tribes of Israel who returned we know that there was a partial fulfillment of what we read about here. There was a new unity that God brought about during the return from exile and to some degree victory over the nations around them. But is this the complete fulfillment of what we see here? No. The complete fulfillment awaited the coming of Jesus Christ and then more and more in the gospel age to be culminated in His return. So, The true fulfillment, the ultimate fulfillment of this is as the new Israel, the church, sees the peoples of the world being gathered into the kingdom. There's this picture of the united Israel. I know some of you are interested in the Patriots. What's the other team? Oh, the Bills. That's right. They're playing tomorrow night, I hear. You know, I was thinking about that, that here's New England. They have two pro football teams, and you know, Israel and Judah, in a sense, being on the same team, would kind of be like the Patriots and Bills making one united team and playing everybody, you know? That gives you a sense of the kind of competition that goes on here. That's, maybe that's an analogy we, we would understand. And together, they will swoop down on the shoulders of the Philistines in the West and plunder the people of the East. But in the fulfillment of this text... In the gospel age, defeating the enemies of God is really about the enemies of God becoming adopted children, sons and daughters of God through Jesus Christ, through faith in His name. It's by the enemies of God being made friends of God through Jesus Christ, that God, through Jesus Christ, through the new birth, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and His cross, God makes us who were once enemies in our sin and our transgressions to be His adopted children. And now we are brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ through faith in His name. And Scripture says that we are now co-heirs of God with Jesus Christ. And then Roman 8, 8 adds the phrase, if indeed we share in His sufferings in order that we may also share in His glory. We're united to Jesus Christ. We are co-heirs with Christ, but we know that will mean suffering for the gospel in some sense. And so, there's this calling to be participating in this grand purpose of God. And then chapter 12 overflows with this beautiful song of trust in the Lord. Really, it's like the sinner who's been converted crying out and describing. This morning, we heard this sermon, Surprised by Joy, and heard about C.S. Lewis and his joy in God, something that surprised him. And this picture of what it means to be trusting God through faith in Christ. Verse 2, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and He has become my salvation. There's this song breaking forth of praise to God. Anyone who's come to trust in Jesus Christ knows something of this. And so the first application we want to draw 
we want to draw two applications, and the first is this. Have you bowed in humble faith and submission to Jesus Christ, the reigning King, and one day His rule and reign will be evident to all? Can you declare what chapter 12 says? Is that a declaration of your heart, not not just from a mental ascent point of view that you say the confession of faith, but in a sense in which it is very personal for you, that He has become your salvation, my salvation, the text says. Can you say that with joy you are drawing water from the well of salvation and you're calling upon the name of the Lord and and willing to make His deeds known, however God would call you to do that? Some of you have been raised in the church. It's a great blessing to be raised in the body of Christ, to be under the outward blessings and the grace that God gives, the preaching of the Word and all of these things. But it's also, in a sense, a danger because when you're around these things all the time, somehow it's easy to get the idea that somehow you just absorb them and make them yours by just association with the church without realizing and without ever really coming to grips with the fact that I need to take these as my own. I need to take my parents' faith and make it my own. I need to do business with God. I need to search my heart and say, have I trusted Jesus Christ? Is He my God? Is He my Lord? There must be a personal entering in. But also, I think our text tells us to search our hearts, to think, how much is this worldwide mission and scope of what God is doing through Jesus Christ, how much is that part of my personal interest? Could I be more involved? Could I be more intentional in this worldwide work of Jesus Christ? I was reading um, Peter Greer's blog. He's the director of Hope International. He's Keith and Bonnie Greer's son and uh, the director of the mission work, Hope International. And I was reading his little blog about giving advice about what to do when you return from a short-term mission trip. And by the way, he has some interesting statistics about missions trips. In 1965, 540 people in the United States went on missions trips. Okay, that's 540 By 2015, 1.5 million Americans went on missions trips, short-term trips. Quite a change, isn't it? But then he also compares and said, guess how many people went on cruises in 2015? 20 million. (laughs) So you can see the missions trips fall woefully behind. I'm not saying it's wrong to go on a cruise. I would get seasick, but I'm not going to try it. One piece of advice he gives when you come back from a short-term trip is love your neighbor. You know, you've been on this trip. It's exciting. You see God at work in different parts of the world. And he says, uh, focus on loving the people that God has placed in your life. So when you think about the people that God has put in this church or your neighborhood or family or friends, or maybe you could be involved in giving a missionary family, a refugee family, a ride to church. I know that the leaders of our refugee ministry are always beating the bushes to find new volunteers to help out as new refugees want to come to worship with us. Or maybe you could be involved in the ESL ministry or just helping in some way with the children in Sunday school or with nursery. There are lots of different ways. 
And then the other thing he says is one of his points. I'm not giving you all the points. Is become a friend and ambassador to the people and projects which stir your heart and move you to action. I think that's an insightful point. He's basically saying none of us can be zealously involved with every missionary project and cause that we might know of or be aware of or even supported by our church. If you look at the missionaries we support, you, you can't thoroughly know them all. So he says, be a friend and ambassador to some project or people or missionary that you can get involved with that stirs your heart and moves you to action. You hear a sermon like this, don't just go out and be unchanged. Say, okay, how can I be intentional? Maybe it's one missionary that I can make sure I get their prayer card and follow up on their prayer letter that comes out and be praying intentionally for that missionary. Or maybe it's a local ministry of some kind, someone you can befriend, someone you can help out. You won't be equally aware of all the needs and ministries, but to be thoughtful and intentional and engaged in some specific ministry. I like it the way David Bryant describes it in his book, In the Gap, about all of us should be seeking to be a world Christian. Not everyone is called to be a missionary, but every Christian is called to be a world Christian. We have seen something in Isaiah 11 of this worldwide purpose of God in the universal reign of Jesus Christ that's coming more and more. And even as our world looks very dark and terrorism abounds and we maybe give way to fear, we are to be confident that Jesus Christ is building his kingdom and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And a world Christian is someone who is so gripped by the glory of God and the glory of the global purpose of God in Jesus Christ that he or she chooses to align himself with God's mission to fill the earth with the knowledge of his glory as the waters cover the sea, Habakkuk 2.14. And everything a world Christian does, he does with a view to the hallowing of God's name and to the coming of God's kingdom among all the peoples of the earth. That is our goal. Your time, your money, your resources, your priorities. And we know that we fall short in various ways. But we're to keep stirring ourselves up and encouraging one another to have this global, worldwide perspective to seek more and more to be world Christians to the glory of God and to the praise of His name. And as God lifts up the banner the sign, the signal to the peoples of the world. Jesus Christ has come in the flesh and calls all people everywhere to believe in him. May we be part of that great and glorious work. Amen. Father, thank you for the good news. Thank you that you included us, we who were apart from you, dead in our trespasses and sin, without hope and without God in the world. And yet you've made us alive in Jesus Christ. And that we, your church, we are your workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which you prepared in advance for us to do. So strengthen us to this great end. Help us as a church to be more and more moved and uh, seeking you for the glory of Jesus to be made known that all the nations of the world might worship Jesus Christ our Lord. We pray in his name. Amen.